I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 1st, 2011. Coming up, why national parks, including urban parks, matter to our health and our national identity. I mean, we have kids today that we take out, they've never seen dark. They've never heard quiet. And what the mighty python is teaching CU scientists about heart disease. That was the first eureka moment when she showed that you could promote this type of cellular growth in the heart cells of a mammal. That motivated us to really push on this project. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. NASA has been taking satellite images of the Earth for over half a century, but these satellites are now reaching the end of their lives. And according to an article in Nature News last Friday, the next generation of satellites isn't ready to take over yet. This could leave a serious gap in data collection, and it could have grave consequences for climate science. Uninterrupted data from the satellites is necessary to show changes over time. Kevin Trenberth, a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, says we can't manage climate change if we can't measure it. NASA's Earth Observing System uses satellites to collect data relating to the Earth's land, atmosphere, and oceans. The data are essential for tracking and predicting climate change. They're also important for figuring out how to prevent and deal with its effects. The current generation of Earth-scanning satellites is expected to expire around 2015. But two satellite launches failed in the past two years, and the replacements are not yet in orbit. Last Friday, NASA launched a prototype for its Joint Polar Satellite System to improve the accuracy of weather forecasting. But due to budget constraints, NASA's next generation of satellites is nowhere near ready for takeoff. Trenberth says Earth observation programs need to be better managed and supported. He and eight co-authors submitted a white paper arguing this point to the World Climate Research Program Conference in Denver last week. This will hopefully bring scientists one small step closer to launching the next generation of satellites and closing the climate data gap. With a second snowstorm looming overhead, you may have thought you could forget about those blood-sucking mosquitoes until next summer. Not so fast. A new breed of mosquitoes is genetically engineered to kill its own children. The mosquitoes pass a lethal gene to their offspring, which kills them before they become adults. Researchers reported on Sunday initial signs of success from the first release of these mosquitoes into the environment, and insect-borne diseases like dengue fever and malaria. But the research has also sparked concern about possible unintended impacts on public health and the environment. Once GM insects are released, they cannot be recalled. In 2009, dengue fever struck the Florida Keys for the first time in decades. Officials there now want to conduct an open-air test of the genetically modified mosquitoes as soon as December. The first release of the mosquitoes occurred in the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean in 2009. It was discussed in a scientific paper published online on Sunday by the journal Nature Biotechnology. The study looked at how successfully the lab-raised genetically engineered insects could mate about 19,000 of them were released over four weeks on Grand Cayman Island. Based on data from traps, the genetically engineered males made up 16% of the overall male population in the test area. The lethal gene was found in nearly 10% of the larvae. 
these figures suggest that GM males were about half as successful in mating as their male as their wild counterparts, a rate sufficient to suppress the population. World health experts are preparing guidelines on how field tests of genetically modified insects should be conducted. Not surprisingly, supporters hope the insect developments won't face the same backlash that biotech's crops have faced. Tonight and tomorrow, our very own How on Earth co-host, Joel Parker, will be performing in a staged reading of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. Performances are tonight, November 1st, at 6 p.m. at the Boulder Public Library Auditorium, and tomorrow, November 2nd, at 7 p.m. at the California Actors Theater in the Twin Peaks Mall in Longmont. These free performances by the Shakespeare Oratorio Society are sponsored by the Shakespeare Festival in Colorado. Joel will return next week to How on Earth perhaps with an Elizabethan accent? You're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. It may come as a surprise that the National Park Service is investing a lot of time and money in luring people to urban parks, not just the iconic and faraway national parks like Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon, Think New York City, San Francisco, Denver. It surprised me, anyway, when I sat down last week with John Jarvis, director of the National Park Service. We met at a conference in Miami. He also spoke of the Park Service's efforts to get more kids and Latinos and African Americans to visit national parks. What's at stake, he said, is the well-being of all Americans, as well as the parks. I began by asking Mr. Jarvis whether he takes so-called nature deficit disorder seriously and why we need nature so much. I think the, the term nature deficit disorder that Richard Louv uh, coined uh, is a concern for us. Um, I think what's that to me, I always look at things more on the optimistic side is that, that we know that, that being in the outdoors and having an opportunity to experience nature has all kinds of positive benefits. Uh, it, uh, it spurs the imagination. It has health benefits. It has this rejuvenation aspect uh, to get us away from the, our very, very busy lives. It breaks my heart that there's a large component of our society that are not take, taking advantage of that experience. And so part of our uh, mission is to reintroduce the public to this opportunity that is, a, that is incredibly cheap, uh, in many cases free, uh, and there are all these great benefits of it. So the entire parks community, national, state, local, regional, city, uh, are all into this right now of creating uh, authentic experience, natural experiences close to home uh, that will be perhaps a threshold experience for them to then go and explore beyond that to the great national parks that this country set aside. So what are some examples of that? So you're saying not necessarily driving 10, 12 hours, taking a plane flight to Yellowstone or wherever else, but actually enjoying sort of open space parks in local areas? And I'll give you a perfect example. We're in the process of developing the largest urban campground in America at Floyd Bennett Field in New York City. Uh, here you can have the opportunity to camp. And this is not Occupy Wall Street. No, it is not. <laughs> this, is, uh, this will be an opportunity to camp at Jamaica Bay, uh, you know, within uh, 30 minutes of uh, uh, the international airport, uh, but to see the skyline, and, but to hear birds and uh, experience nature right within New York City. I mean, we have kids today that we take out, they've never seen dark. They've never heard quiet. Wow. Um, 
some kids that are growing up in Los Angeles have never set foot in the Pacific Ocean, uh, never walked on the beach. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, and the experience can be transformative to them uh, just to give them that kind of chance. And so getting kids to parks... Uh, whether they are urban parks or, or rural parks, is really a critical component. To what degree is the root of the problem nowadays generational and or socioeconomic? I think it's all of those. I mean, I think one thing is that, you know, we are seeing our visitation, you know, either drop slightly or flat, but we're still at 285 million visitors. So it's, we still get a lot of visitation uh, to our national parks. Uh, and we still are a major draw internationally. We get 60 million visitors from around the world to come to the national parks of the United States. However, we're not seeing uh, a representative de- dem- demographic of the, the United States international parks. So there are certain communities, uh, Latinos, African Americans, in some cases Asian Americans, that are not coming to the national parks for one reason or the other. Uh, and we're trying to understand that. Um, and part of it is, is socioeconomic. Uh, uh, they may be, you know, both adults are working. They may be working two jobs. Uh, they may not have transportation. There may be a lack of knowledge. Uh, and there may n- have not been any, any personal experience in their upbringing mm-hmm. uh, with uh, these public lands and these great national parks so that the parents take their kids to what they're familiar with. And so... and. Uh, and there is also a lack of, in some cases, uh, understanding that these are uh, available, they're inexpensive, and there may be not enough information of how to do it. Um, and so we're investing all of that kind of information. And we're focused a lot on young people, to build a new generation of young people that are connected to these places as well. And what's an example of how you're trying to make inroads and are making inroads? Well, we have a number of programs that are specifically related, related to young people, particularly in the sort of teen up into you know, early college, you know, 20-year-old kinds of things. We have a lot of youth program in that area. And, and then we're highly encouraging them to use social networking uh, to tell about their experiences, to share that experience you know, through photography, through blogging, all of that. And then they will, that will spread you know, just like it does with all other kinds of things in terms of social networking, of creating a community around these kinds of experiences that will draw young people to come uh, and experience the national parks. And when you <clears throat> see an increase in, say, kids going to, or in inner city kids, using local parks, mm-hmm. does it translate to then going to and appreciating the bigger, farther away national parks? And, and does it matter from your perspective? Well, I think it matters a lot. I think that... Uh, the, I have a, a strong interest in urban parks uh, because I think it is a threshold experience for them. Um, I think uh, that's why we started uh, a new uh, design awards program for parks, for urban parks, uh, in cooperation with several universities like the University of, of Virginia. That, uh, so we just awarded our first set of designs this last year uh, about... Um, urban parks that incorporate a component of natural as well as you know landscape design as well and we're seeing some extraordinary new kinds of parks appear in urban landscapes that I do believe that that uh, if there is the follow-up knowledge that something greater than this exists and I can that they can go do that 
And what what kind of statistics do you have, or what what are you showing based on the research and observation that the, the service is doing? Well, I don't think we have a lot of quantitative research on this. Uh, most of it's anecdotal, but uh, I certainly get a lot of email or notes from people that, uh, you know, as a result of some childhood experience or some opportunity within an urban environment, uh, they uh, they come away uh, with this, you know, discovery that this is out there. I mean, I've I've heard this, and particularly for the programs that we've invested in young people that, um, uh, like uh, a program that our superintendent at Death Valley created called Death Valley Rocks, uh, (laughs) which uh, uh, taking kids from the urban environment of Los Angeles, even kids that are, you know, uh, prone to be involved in gang activity and bringing them to a place like Death Valley and their eyes open up and they say, oh my God, they see the Milky Way for the first time. Uh, they see wildlife, uh, they see, they hear quiet, and they go back different. You know, they go back completely different. Uh, and uh, and one of the things that we were trying to do as well is they go back to their own community and they say, how come I don't have any? I don't have a park in my community? And uh, then they become community organizers, and we have staff that can assist them. And through a variety of different kinds of urban park programs, we can help them build a park. Maybe there's a uh, an empty lot. Maybe there's a you know, a, a red field that could be converted to a green field, uh, all these opportunities to build a park in their own neighborhood and take ownership of that park, uh, have community around it to, to create community gardens, all that kind of stuff. And then that, and then they see that long-term relationship between what they have in their community and what they have as an American citizen that they also own, which is our national parks. And one other thing, which of all the places do you think is most in jeopardy now? Well, I mean, there are a number of challenges across our national parks, uh, air quality in the, the Grand Canyon, climate change, sea level rise on our coastal parks, uh, the Everglades. Uh, I, you know, I think among our big natural parks, I think the Everglades is probably the most threatened. Uh, you know, it has incredible numbers of exotic species that have, have uh, become... Uh, uh, you know, resident, and you know whether it's Burmese pythons or tropical fish or uh, you know other plant species that have moved into the glades. All of those kinds of things potentially threat this absolutely unique in the world system. Uh, we're pouring uh, enormous amount of political and funding effort into the restoration of the Everglades, but it's still a big challenge. That was John Jarvis, director of the National Park Service. An extended version of the interview will be on our website by tomorrow at howonearthradio.org. One of the exotic Burmese pythons John Jarvis referenced was captured in the Everglades just this week, with an entire deer in its belly. You can check out the startling photos on the Huffington Post. But pythons aren't all bad, apparently. Studying pythons might seem an unlikely way to help people with heart disease. But a python's remarkable ability to quickly enlarge its heart and other organs during digestion is leading scientists at the University of Colorado in Boulder to uncover potential new therapies for heart disease. Their research was published last week in the journal Science. And it's another chapter in the the outside-the-box research that's coming from the CU Molecular and Cellular Biology Department and CU's new BioFrontiers Institute. The research includes scientists in several disciplines, working together as sleuths of medical science and biology. 
What's more, this new study is not only about how python hearts are giving clues to the workings of the human heart. It's about how a special combination of fats found in normal foods just might end up as a powerful drug someday for helping a failing heart. For more, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. TV crews zoom in and cameras click in a science lab at the University of Colorado in Boulder. The stars of this media event come complete with a handler who cradles their sleek, brown, curling bodies and points out helpfully that not a single one is hissing. The snakes are young Burmese pythons. Each one is well over a meter long, but they can grow to seven meters. Molecular biologist Leslie Linewan says she studies them because of what she calls their extreme physiology. They can go for months and months without eating anything, and nothing terrible happens to them. For instance, she says, even a big python never needs a midday dinner or even a weekly meal. When these giant serpents do slither in for supper, instead of rice or a burger and fries, they prefer a rat, a pig, or even a deer. And unlike people, pythons never nibble. This snake swallows its prey in one gulp. After that, Lainwan says, things get even stranger. Right after they eat uh, their meal, the bulk of their organs in the body get bigger. To speed digestion of that monstrous meal, the python's heart also gets bigger, 40% larger than normal. It can take two weeks for a python to finish digesting its dinner, after which the heart and digestive organs gradually return to their normal size. The key to this unusual process appears to be the python's blood. When scientists filter out the red blood cells of a resting python, the remaining plasma is clear, like human plasma. But as CU student Ryan Doptis explains, Python plasma changes dramatically during the first days of digestion. Their blood is actually milky white, and that milkiness, or what's making it white, is actually the fat in the blood, fatty acids. That fat gives the python energy for digesting its meal, says Leslie Leinwand, just as blood fats fuel our bodies. However, she says, the strange milky blood coursing through a python's body during the digestion process contains 50 times more fat than it normally does. In people, high blood fat can increase the risk of heart attack. You or me, that would be pretty toxic. And in the python, it isn't toxic at all. And what happens is the pythons have evolved a way of burning that fat that's in their blood from eating this meal very efficiently and without any sort of harmful byproducts. There's what we would call cardio protection or heart protection that the python has. She adds that people, too, sometimes need cardio protection. When someone suffers from high blood pressure or has a heart attack, heart cells can die. Over time, the weakened heart may grow flabbier in a way that increases damage. While exercise can strengthen some hearts, Lineman warns it's not for everyone. Some people with such severe heart disease can't exercise enough to get that benefit. So our idea is that we could use the, what we've learned in the python perhaps to treat heart disease. Linewand explains that when the python's heart grows to help the snake digest its meal, it's doing something that also happens to a much lesser extent to a human athlete's heart. Each individual heart cell is getting larger and stronger. Her graduate student, lead researcher Cecilia Riquielme, wondered if the fatty snake blood could produce similar changes to a mammal's heart. Speaking via Skype, she says she followed a hunch. There has to be a factor in the blood that was inducing all the organs to grow in a concerted manner. So how can I prove that? I decided maybe I can just try the python blood on cardiac cells in the laboratory. 
so Requielme bathed heart cells from a rat in python plasma. Those cells grew bigger and stronger. The results astonished Leslie Leinwand. That was the first eureka moment of this project because it still would be of academic interest if it was something specific to, you know, snakes. But when she showed that you could promote this type of cellular growth in the heart cells of a mammal, that motivated us to really push on this project. But just what in the python plasma was making the heart cells stronger? Requielme said it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. What was the special factor? Was it amino acids, proteins, hormones, fats? She began by looking at proteins that might affect signaling pathways. I started my search thinking that it was a protein because that's kind of the obvious natural or natural way to think. It has to be a, a protein that is inducing that because there are so many receptors for proteins in, in the cell that I thought that would be the way. Requielme deactivated all the proteins in the python plasma and tested it on the heart cells of the rat again. Even without the proteins in the plasma, the heart cells grew stronger and bigger. So she and the team she was working with decided to start looking at fats. Jason Megilla helped her profile the changes in the fatty acids between a python before it ate and the fatty acids after it ate. The milkiness is because of the triglyceride particles. It's not just the fatty acids. The researchers zeroed in on three key fatty acids in the python's milky blood, Fats which are also found in foods such as coconut oil, animal fat, and butter. So it's meristic, palmitic, and palmitolaic. I want to emphasize it needs to be those three and in a particular combination that's found in the python. These fatty acids are only a fraction of the many fats in a python's blood, but they are powerful. Researcher Brooke Harrison infused them in a live mouse whose heart grew bigger and stronger. He says there's more work ahead. If we have our mouse with a big, sick heart, if the fatty acids would help our heart, we don't know that at this point. But if those fatty acids do help a sick mouse heart, the team plans to move on to trials in humans. And Leinwand says all this might lead to a new drug for heart disease. Those three fatty acids would be the drug. It's way too early to call it a powerful drug, but it sure looks promising. Leinwand and her colleagues at the University of Colorado published their study of python blood and heart disease in the journal Science. I'm Shelley Schlender. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Tom McKinnon. This week's show producer is Susan Moran. Our engineer was also Tom McKinnon with additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. Additional music from Thomas Mapfumo. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Brianna Draxler.